Well, as you're making your way back to your seats, I would invite you to go ahead and turn in a copy of God's Word to Philippians chapter 3. Again, we are in Philippians chapter 3 this morning, continuing our journey through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And we are in verses 12 to the end of the chapter, into the first verse of chapter 4. So Philippians 3, verse 12 through chapter 4, verse 1. It's printed for you on your bulletin on page 7. Or again, you can turn in a copy of God's Word as well. And it says this. Not that I, Paul, have already obtained this, or am already perfect, But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. Rome was not built in a day. Rome was not built in a day, a phrase that we're all familiar with, the idea that to really see something uh, remarkable happen, to see something big or epic happen, to see something really take shape or take root for anything worthwhile or special to happen. It not only uh, takes time, but it takes steps. It takes stages. There is a progression. There are building blocks to anything worthwhile to anything worth doing, that there is a beginning, there is a middle, and there is an end. And again, we can think of that in our own lives, can we not? There are many earthly endeavors uh, where that is undoubtedly true, the building of cities, like Rome, the building of empires, again, uh, like Rome. The construction of buildings, of any kind of project, of any kind of cause, right? You can apply even the idea that Rome was not built in a day to uh, your own personal life, right? Your business didn't grow overnight. Your business didn't thrive overnight. Your career, uh, your house that you bought, right? Perhaps it wasn't move-in ready. You had to do a lot of work to it uh, for many nights, (laughs) many months, many seasons. Your marriage, your education, your personal goals of all kinds, right? They take time. They take steps. They take progress. They take stages. Well, Paul reminds us here, as he continues his train of thought in chapter 3, and he goes from verse 12 again to the end, Paul here begins to remind us that if this idea 
uh, is true of earthly things, it is that much more true of spiritual things. It's that much more true of spiritual endeavors, particularly the spiritual endeavor of complete and total conformity to Christ. Complete and total conformity to Christ. The process, really, after our initial salvation, this process that we call sanctification, this process of progressive holiness, progressive and incremental conformity to Christ, this idea that after we're saved, we're then sanctified until we ultimately get to that point we know as glorification, of total perfection, of total perfection uh, before God. In fact, Paul actually labels it that. Look in verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect or am already glorified, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. You see, right here in that one sentence, that opening sentence, there is this great summary this great, succinct summary of what the Christian life actually looks like. That Christ Jesus saves us, as Paul has spoken of in previous chapters, as he spoke of even in the beginning of chapter 3, where he basically tears up his own resume, tears up the own uh, works of his hands, and instead says, I cling to Christ alone. That everything I did cling to is rubbish in, in comparison to Christ. That Christ saves us entirely on his own. It's his righteousness it's his forgiveness, it's his reconciliation, his atonement, his substitution, life, death, and resurrection. He saves us entirely on his own. Again, before we're perfect, uh, before we're good, in fact, it's the opposite, right? Because we are imperfect, because we are not good, we require the saving. And so Christ does that entirely on his own. It begins and ends with his work. But then once we are his, and we see this all throughout Paul's letters. Once we have been called by God and saved by God, once we are his, through the power of the Spirit, we begin then to strive for the things of God. We begin to see ourselves slowly conformed, again, incrementally, towards the things of God. That we begin to cultivate an appetite uh, that, that no longer looks to worldly things, but increasingly looks to heavenly things. We press on, in other words, as the heading in your Bible probably says, we press on towards the goal. Verse 14 says it that way. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And again, this doesn't happen all at, all at once. The saving does. But the, the new heart, the new appetite, the new affections, those happen over time. They're incremental. They're progressive. But we continue to strive. We continue to work knowing that we're already loved. We're already secure. Uh, one way to think of it, um, you've heard me say it before, but if you were to think of that illustrative statement that we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, that if we think of that statement in a literal picture, that you've been, you know, you've been clothed with Christ's garments. If you, were, if you stuck around after service last Sunday, as my family and I were still sitting here just kind of chatting, my son, Wyatt, actually took my coat. This is my only good coat. If you notice, I wear it every Sunday. Uh, literally, every Sunday. Uh, it's my only good coat, all right? My son, Wyatt, took that coat, and I kind of I gasped, okay, because I can't lose it. All right? But he put it on, and he was running around stage, you know, and it's baggy, and it doesn't fit him, right? Okay, but he took that coat and he was wearing it. And in a silly way, that's a great picture of what happens in our salvation, that we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We do truly belong. We've been, truly been gifted his atoning garments. 
But when we first receive them, it's as if they don't fit, right? They don't match. They're baggy. And again, we never earn that salvation. Don't mishear me. We never earn that salvation. We never actually truly warrant that salvation. It's only by God's grace. It's a free gift. But over time, what happens? Paul tells us in Ephesians that we begin to grow up in every way into him who is the head, namely Christ. That we do actually begin to mature. That the salvation that has been worked in by God now begins to be worked out of us as well. It begins to express itself. And we grow up into, again, that, that righteousness if you will. That's what Paul is getting at here, that it's incremental and it's progressive, but it is a sure thing that we press on and we strive towards. And so as Paul begins to unpack this, he gives us really in these verses kind of a toolbox to work with, a toolbox to work with as we pursue holiness, as we pursue, again, the upward call of Christ Jesus. And he gives us five tools, in my opinion here, five tools The first you see in verse 13 and 14. The first tool is this. It's a humble recognition that we never, ever actually think we've arrived. We never, ever actually think that we've arrived. Again, look in verse 13. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies ahead and straying forward, excuse me, forgetting what lies behind and straying forward, to what lies ahead. We never think we've actually arrived. In other words, we don't get complacent in the Christian life. We don't get complacent because, in a sense, uh, complacency is a form of pride, really, isn't it? I mean, in a way, it could be expressed that way. And what does pride always precede? (laughs) The fall, right? Pride comes before the fall, and so we don't believe ever that we've actually arrived at like Christian perfection. <laughs> that no more, you know, uh, work, so to speak, is needed, that we're just perfect and ready to be beamed up into heaven, right, and to be welcomed through the VIP entrance, you know, of the pearly gates. No, we don't think that we've actually yet arrived, that we have never finally gotten it all together, or we have never finally again reached. Christian perfection, but what do we instead believe? We remain mindful of our shortcomings. We remain mindful, again, as I prayed in our prayer of confession, that yes, we are the Lord's. Yes, we have been bought and purchased and clothed with his righteousness, but we're still a work in progress. We're still very much a work in progress as this old nature is transformed into the new nature. And so we still have, you know, triggers. We still have sources of temptation. We still have things that will ensnare us. And so we never believe that we've fully arrived. But again, what does Paul say? Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have yet made it my own. And so what does that do to us then? What does that do? It makes us humble. It just, it creates a humble posture in ourselves, right? Where again, we don't think we have it all together. We don't think that we're perfect Christians, but we are humble. We are still reliant upon the daily mercy and grace of our Lord. And that humility then also works out of us. And what does it make us then in, in, in relation to others? It makes us gracious, right? Because if I haven't yet attained perfection, and neither has my neighbor or my friend or that person next to me in the pew, then when they struggle, how do we respond? Graciously. 
graciously, knowing that we're all a work in progress. We're all a work in progress of God's changing and transforming grace. The second tool we see, though, again, in verse 13, verse 13, it's this resolve to keep our eyes focused ahead and not behind. Again, look at that second half of verse 13. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. We don't look behind, but we look ahead. I remember uh, my uncle down in Fort Lauderdale, uh, before I actually moved there, we were in central Florida, before we actually moved to, to south Florida, I would visit my uncle though, and he would take me to the spy shop, it was called, in Fort Lauderdale which was this really cool hole-in-the-wall store with like, you know, like um, security cameras and gadgets and whatnot. It was like really cool, especially for a a kid my age. And I remember one time he bought me what they called spy glasses, which were these sunglasses that had mirrors actually built, you know, into the lens on on, on your like uh, peripheral vision. And so you could be walking, right, and look, you know, in your peripheral vision and actually see behind you. Uh, that was like the coolest thing, right, for, for a kid. So, you know, looking behind but not ahead. Or you're, you've seen maybe on TV recently, there's a, uh, I think it's a, is it Progressive? Allstate, Allstate commercial, uh, where that guy is driving and uh, he's on his way to a ball game and there's the guy tailgating him, if you remember, behind the car. And he's on his way to a tailgate, literally, at the ball game. And so he keeps looking in his rearview mirror. He's like, I can't go anywhere. I can't go any faster. You know, what, what do you want me to do? Why are you tailgating me? But because he's looking in the rearview mirror, he's not looking ahead. He's looking behind, not ahead. And what happens? He crashes, right? He crashes the car. And the tailgater just goes right around him and, and keeps going. And it's this funny all-state, you know, car insurance commercial. Okay, well, that's the same, you know, mental picture we should have here as we're thinking of these verses, that as Paul here calls us to the Christian life, and as, again, we seek and pursue conformity to Christ, we keep our eyes focused ahead on the goal. We keep our eyes focused on what's ahead of us and not behind us. And that, that, that takes two forms, basically. In other words, we don't look behind us first at our achievements. We don't look behind us at our resumes or our accolades. That was what Paul was disarming in the first half of chapter 3, if you remember. Paul was saying, look, if we want to boast about, you know, the the works of our hands, if we want to tout resumes, I'm the best at that, okay? And and let me show you. And he did that in in the first half of chapter 3. So Paul says, we don't look behind us at the work of our hands. We don't look behind us at our past achievements or spirituality or our religiosity. We don't look behind us at the things that we want to put before God and say, see, this is why, why I'm Christ-like. We don't look behind us at those things, at our good works. Our good works are like what? Filthy rags before the holy God. But we also don't look behind us at what? At our failures. We also don't look behind us. We don't have a constant eye to that mirror in our spy glasses at our past failures and our past screw-ups, at those past lapses that have tempted us to think that we're beyond God's love. Those past failures where we think, oh man, nah, this time I really screwed up. This time, oh, God, God really can't love me. But what do we do? We turn the page. We turn the page. 
We do truly believe that we in Christ have become a new creation, that yes, we'll still struggle, that again, yes, sanctification in a sense is two steps forward and one step back, but what do we do? We fix our eyes away from ourselves and ahead on the goal, on the author and the perfecter of our faith, Christ Jesus. So again, we don't think we've actually arrived. We fix our eyes ahead and not behind. But then also we see something else here from Paul, a third tool. Look in verse 16. In verse 16 he says, uh, well, you can start in 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if you in anything think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Verse 16, only let us then hold true to what we have attained. So how does one become more and more like Christ? How does, again, sanctification begin to work itself out in our lives? Well, again, we, we think less of ourselves. We don't think we've arrived. We look ahead and not behind. But then thirdly here, we hold true to what we've been given. We hold true to what we've attained. Because at this point in Paul's life, and at this point even in your life, what has Paul attained? What has he already received? What wasn't just a future truth about Paul, but was also a present truth? And again, what is now a, a, a present truth about you, not just a future truth? And it's one thing and one thing only, the gospel. <laughs> the gospel of Christ Jesus. The announcement of our salvation. The announcement of our acceptance before God, the announcement of us being now a part of God's family, that sanctification, the transformation of our natures, the transformation of our appetites and our desires, those things happen incrementally as we continue to hear again and again the good news of Jesus. That's why Paul says here, in, in your fight in, against the flesh, in your pursuit of this goal, hold true, hold true to what you have attained. You don't move past the gospel. You move only further deeper into an understanding of the gospel. That your grip over time in the Christian life becomes tighter and tighter on the gospel. And so again, that's why Paul has to tell his congregations over and over again, and us as well, that, that you know, we never need more than Jesus. Never need more than Jesus. We just need more of Jesus, right? I mean, again, think in all his letters, he's always having to fight against this temptation in the Christian life to add something. That if I'm going to be sanctified, if I'm going to be really holy before the Lord, that I need to now go out and add this, you know, this kind of good work, or I need to go add this you know, legal requirement. Think in Galatia, right? I need to add circumcision to the list. It even comes up here in Philippians. I need to add some kind of ritual or something, right? And Paul says, no, no, you don't, need, you, don't need, you don't need something other than Jesus. You don't need something in addition to Jesus. You just need more of Jesus. You need more of your life to come under his lordship, more of those unevangelized portions of your heart to now be given over to him. You need to understand even more fully the depths of his love and of his grace. You need to understand and truly believe more fully that again, on your best days, you're not beyond the, the need of Jesus. And then on your worst days, you're not beyond his reach. So again, Paul says, in your fight against the flesh, in your fight towards holiness, hold true to what you've been given, hold true to what we have attained, which is, again, the gospel of Christ Jesus. And then lastly, 
the, the final kind of two tools, if you will, that Paul gives us are there in verses 17 through the end. And that fourth tool in verse 17 is this tool of imitation or this tool of accountability. Verse 17, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. It seems like a prideful statement at first, right? <laughs> Paul's telling them to imitate him. I, I know I wouldn't, I'd be reluctant to tell a lot of you to imitate me. Um, and I mean that seriously, right? Uh, but Paul says it here. And so what is, he, what is he getting at? Well, one of the final pieces he's getting at here, one of the final graces that uh, Paul says God has given us for the Christian journey, one of the building blocks, if you will, uh, towards Christian maturity is to identify those people in your lives. To identify those people that God has placed in your lives who are further along in the Christian journey. Who are further along in their profession or their following after, after God. And who so evidence a Christ-likeness that they can be a help to you in your own Christian struggle. Because again, think about how that works for us, right? That, that we don't have the the, the benefit of seeing Christ today, of seeing Christ this side of eternity, of seeing Christ in the earthly life. But what do we have the privilege of seeing? We have seen those who have been bought by Christ, those who have had the Spirit of Christ placed within them, and those who are further along, so to speak, in that journey of sanctification, that progressive move towards our ultimate home. And so how then can you be mentored by them? How can you imitate them? Again, not imitate their, you know, earthly practices, but imitate those Godward aims that they have in their lives that can encourage you, that can be Christ to you, again, in this life. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a favorite author of mine, you've heard me say it before, in his, in his great little book called Life Together, uh, says that the Christ in my brother or the Christ in my sister is often stronger than the Christ in me. And what does that mean? Well, it means that God has placed us in Christian community where we have brothers and sisters who are walking the same journey that we are, but there are some who are further along, right? The Apostle Paul was further along, so to speak, than these new converts in Philippi. And so he says, as you're waging war against the flesh, as you're trying to cultivate an appetite for heavenly things, imitate me as I follow Christ. And again, the same thing is true for us. As we work against the flesh, as we follow after our Lord and Savior, who has God placed in your life? Mentors and things like that. Who, again, you can imitate their pursuit of Jesus. And it can hold you accountable. That's the, that's the beauty and the blessing of living in Christian community. Hebrews 12 says it this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So again, as a way of recap, as we close, the sanctified Christian life is built first by never thinking we have already arrived, but continuing to strive after Christ. Secondly, by never looking behind at past successes or sins, but fixing our gaze forward on Christ again. 
Thirdly, by holding true to what we have been attained and given in the gospel. Fourthly, by imitating mature believers in the faith that God has placed around us. And then fifth and finally, we're told in verse 20 that we should continually remember where we truly belong. Again, look at verse 20. But our citizenship, he kind of contrasts us. Look at verse 19, actually. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. These are the enemies of Christ. They glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But what is true about you as a Christian? But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You see, Paul here reminds us of what one New Testament scholar says when he says that Christian communities are supposed to be colonies of heaven. Christian communities are supposed to be colonies of heaven. That again, we're never perfect in and of ourselves. Our churches certainly aren't perfect. Our own personal lives aren't perfect. But we have been called to be a people that give a glimpse. They give a glimpse of what it'll look like when heaven ultimately comes to earth in all of its fullness. That yes, we remain here. Yes, we have, you know, uh, Lake Worth uh, or West Palm addresses and, and, and zip codes and all those things, but our ultimate citizenship is not here. Our ultimate citizenship is in the city that is to come. The city that is to come. And so that then motivates and informs what we should pursue. That motivates and pursues, or motivates and informs what we should uh, pursue with our time, with our treasures, um, with our affections. And again, according to the things of God, according to our true citizenship, which is, again, the city that is to come. And we do this with this kind of expectant posture that Paul tells us to be in here. That we, we remind ourselves of our true citizenship and we await the full revelation of our Savior. And then verse 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Rome wasn't built in a day. We know that. Uh, and neither is the greater kingdom of God. It, whether that be in our personal lives, as we can all attest, or even in the world. But Paul here wants us to take heart. Again, take heart. Look at our last verse. Therefore, my brothers, this is chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Again, Rome wasn't built in a day. The kingdom of God wasn't built in a day in our own lives or in the world. But take heart. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with us. He will never leave us or forsake us, that he will complete the good works he starts. And like Paul says here, that then enables us to stand firm with great joy to know that we are the Lord's beloved. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this reminder we've been given through your word. We do thank you, Lord, that you are with us, 
that you were with us that moment of our conversion, that moment where we had the, uh, the veil taken from our eyes and we saw you for who you really are, and you are with us every step of the way, that you love us exactly as we are, but you love us so much that you don't leave us where we are, but you do, through the power of your Spirit, transform us and conform us more and more into the image of your Son, Christ. And so we thank you again for this reminder, Lord, and we pray that as we survey our lives, as we survey this world, that we would continue to look to you with expectant hope, with this biblical patience, knowing that you are doing a great work in us and through us, and that one day all will be set right, all will come to completion, because of the promise we have in Christ Jesus. So again, we thank you and praise you for the gift of your word and this reminder. In Jesus' name, amen.